Welcome to Off The Fence. We're here another week, another week in politics. We're going to be talking about lots of stuff that's been happening. I'm James Fox. If you've not been with us before, catch us on soundcloud.com slash offthefence. Tweet us on at offthefencetalk. I've got sitting next to me, co-host Alex Maskell, who's back. What's up, everyone? It's good to have you in. Freya we're- is not joining us this week. She's left us again. Unfortunately, she, she can't make this week. But we're here. We've got stuff to talk about. There's lots coming up. Um, let's have a look at what we have got coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking about a certain Matt Saab cousin who appeared on uh, ITV at the weekend and put uh, something forward that I think is food for thought, um, something that I think hasn't been discussed enough. We'll be talking about that later on. We're going to be talking about uh, an amazing piece in the New York Times, right, about uh, Trump and the inside the White House, all these reports that keep coming out about what things are actually like on the inside and uh, how yeah. people that aren't even kind of, you know, the people that are sometimes perceived to be the... Uh, the Trojan horses inside the White House, but even the people who aren't considered that, you know, the people that are close to Trump having to handle him and what that's going to be like. It's pretty astonishing. Every month for the last year or so since all this happened, there's been some like massive embarrassing leak about how dysfunctional the Trump team is. And they're always fun to read. So I've got a couple of just choice quotes that have emerged. Cool, we've got that coming up. And we also have uh, a piece that appeared in The Observer at the weekend about people that are friends from different parties and how that gets on so we'll be picking some of that apart some of the interesting points from that piece that'll be cool Um, but quickly first though we're going to do some quick mentions some really fast stories first off is Welsh women telling Hillary Clinton when she visited Wales just literally going up to her and saying Bernie would have (laughs) won it's pretty funny you can watch um, the footage online Um, it's actually a student at the university uh, Swansea University um, okay. in South Wales um, said Bernie would have won and also after saying that uh, shouted only you could lose to Trump like that uh, and and very swiftly her and her entourage just like let's go let's leave like <laughs> just bailed on the whole thing that um, was that was misjudged on their part yeah. another thing that happened was uh, this values voter summit um, which is a very right wing conservative kind of conference thing pretty sure it's got like a christian flick to it is that right you know the the evangelical wing of the republican party in america and there was a big speech from uh you know big boy of the alt-right steve bannon there before steve bannon we had one sebastian gorka opener for steve bannon um obviously these two are people that were inside the white house big parts of the strategy team in the trump administration bannon was gorka was a tv guy who literally couldn't get credentials to go into the white house because of his history with fascist true true but and gorka was involved with the trump administration way before bannon was in terms of on an actual part of the campaign he was and he's also this hysterical bond villain who is just so much fun to like do an impression of he is he is uh, but he did he did a speech he did a few things i want to bring out from that the thrust of his speech was well after comparing steve bannon to obi-wan kenobi huh. which was pretty funny but he, truly they, the alpha males yeah. are in charge of the white house <laughs> he basically was doing that you strike me down i'll become more powerful blah 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 saying <laughs> outside of the white house he's going to be more effective and that's basically what he was saying was you know he said things like, uh, quote, the left has no idea how much more damage we can do to them as private citizens, uh, as opposed to uh, being in the Trump administration. I love that, because the Star Wars analogy is, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi says, if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you can possibly imagine, and then immediately dies. Yeah. So I don't know, like, what the analogy there is supposed to be, but I love the idea that, like, well, I have a particularly charged Pinterest this morning. This will be the thing that truly strikes the blow against the establishment. So that, that was the thing, and Steve Bannon basically came out saying a lot of the same stuff. This follows on from Roy Moore and everything like that. They feel like 2018, that kind of whole alt-right, are we going to take on the Republican? Yeah. Once again, like the alt-right is just the emerging of the American fascist tendency, yeah. and there are very few people who really sum that up quite like Roy Moore. Maybe like Joe Arpaio would be another one, who'd like genuinely, you know, not like neo-Nazis, but... If a fa- like if a fascism was born of American Americanism and Americana, they would be it. Like yeah. he's that kind of person. He's not someone who actually has any respect for the, you know, whatever mythologized values America is supposed to be out. Because for a certain kind of person, America means religious mania and white supremacy, essentially. Like religious or religious mania, white supremacy, and both of those things. Uh, like manifested as extremely like 
uh, objectivist uh, like financial regulations. Like for some reason, they've made low taxes a religious matter. Yeah. But- Moving back to the UK, or rather, maybe not moving back to the UK, because I'm pretty sure this guy lives in the US, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber has quit the House of Lords. Um, this is the guy that I'm pretty sure flew... Like, he doesn't really vote that much. He doesn't really engage in the House of Lords that much. It's like, he's just like, yeah, I can be a, ha- I can be a Lord. I think he did fly back for the uh, child tax credits thing. Do you remember that, that vote? Ah, uh, yes. And the House of Lords blocks it. Well, I mean, I think that we're all much poorer for... Um you know, not having the input of the intellectual colossus that is the guy who wrote Phantom <laughs> of the Opera. I think we can all agree. Yeah, that he, he's seen the writing on the wall. Yeah, yeah, he, he knows what's up. And, you know, if even someone as like dumb as him can get it. Lastly, Philip Hammond, Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, who's kind of managed this week to piss off both Remainers and Leavers in equal measure. Uh, Truly the man is a unifier. Yeah. Leavers because he, he's not committing to putting in like a uh, no-deal Brexit emergency fund. So if we don't get a deal from the European Union, um, essentially th- that situation, we'd need to start putting money in now. We'd need to start like really putting yeah. money out there and we'd have to have a load of money set aside. Oh, we've needed emergency funds forever and they just haven't been there. Like We've needed an emergency fund to deal with the inevitable coming years uh, economic crisis that's going to happen because we learned nothing and changed almost nothing from 2008 2008. so you know like we all know that like none of the world banks but particularly not British banks are in a position to withstand another recession no if it comes again the whole thing comes crashing down but but that's why he's pissed leavers off right he's also pissed remainers off for calling the EU the enemy, oh. yeah, <laughs> which he had to like, I mean, he had to take back on Twitter. It was like, sorry, I used the wrong vo- yeah. choice of words. I mean, that's that's so symbolic that it's much harder, I guess, to care about that one. But yeah, you, I can tell that there's a certain kind of person where, like, you know, they're the diehard Romaniac who, like, just religiously follow Ian Dunt on Twitter for everything <laughs> he says. And, like, you know, Brexit is the only political issue they've ever been engaged with because it's the only one that's ever actually affected them and the things that they can do in their lives personally. You know, it, it's it's one of those things where, like, that kind of person will dig into the symbolism of yeah. calling the EU the enemy like nobody business. So after that week for him, he's come out saying that um, he's going to have to do a big, bold budget for, uh, you know, November 22nd, I think, the, the budget comes out. There's no longer an autumn statement. He said, we're not going to have autumn statements. Um, We're going to have like a spring statement, an autumn budget, and then no longer a spring statement. So now it's an autumn budget only forever, Um, which wasn't like hilarious at the time. But yeah, autumn budget is the only thing happening now. November 22nd, that's going to be coming. And he's announcing that we need to have a big intergenerational sort of fairness budget. And he's going to be cutting taxes for young people and putting a bit more of a load on older voters, which strikes me as a plan that is only going to piss off both of those groups. I mean, not piss off young people, but largely it's not going to win young people over. Young people aren't paying exceeding amount of tax. No, and, really. the, and the wealth gap, which is the actual significant thing, the gap in inherited wealth is larger for 18 to 34 year olds than it is for any other demographic. Yeah. You know, the, the disparity in wealth that needs to be addressed through some kind of redistribution of wealth is most pressing for young people. But also, young people don't have a political preference for be, uh, for low taxes, as yeah. they demonstrated fairly overwhelmingly at the last election. So I don't know who they're getting at. But also, they're taxing their key demographic, their demographic basically entirely unified at this point around not wanting to be taxed, even higher. Like <laughs> I know, it's almost like completely blind to where this is going to lead yeah i should read some quotes because this was splashed all over the front page of the daily telegraph the other day the chancellor because of of course they'll be striking back against this with everything they can think of (laughs) the chancellor of the exchequer is understood to be examining ways to link tax to age for the first time in an attempt to promote quote intergenerational fairness in next month's budget tax breaks will be offered to workers in their 20s and 30s paid for by cutting tax relief for older and wealthier workers one Whitehall source said the budget to be unveiled on November 22nd would be bold, attempt to restack the deck for the next generation. There's plenty of other Tory, um, I think that's read Tory peer come out today saying this is a fucking joke, you know, not in those words. <laughs> but, you know, this is a joke 
this is clearly hammering our like core voter base. What are you doing, Hammond? What do they? What? What do they think they're doing? I like, feel like do, this who is a dementia they, tax all over again. Yeah, and who do they think is going... One, what young people do they think are going to be... Well, now I'm feeling the Conservatives. But, but also... I, the reason yeah. why I linked it to him pissing off Remainers and Leavers, though, is because they've mentioned this in the Telegraph front page as well. He's basically fighting for his job here, and I feel like he's, he's lost it so much. Shall we move on to this Observer cross-party friendship article? Let's go for it. So the Observer uh, recently published an article that details a bunch of cross-party friendships, mainly between Labour and Conservative MPs, and uh, try to explore why they've come about and what makes them tick, you know, how come these people are friends. And this kind of bounces off the back of that story when Laura Pickock said, no, nah, mate, I'm not going to buddy up and be best friends with Tories. Like, I'm a Labour MP. I've been voted in to oppose certain policies that I can see are impacting my constituents. I'm not going to buddy up and be best pals with the people I can see are perpetuating those policies. Yeah, and then you have all these conservative commentators who are like, well, Laura has declared war on every conservative ever. It's it's striking that she would claim that she wants to see every conservative dead. And there wasn't, I think it was Ian Martin, I can't remember who it was, but I saw one tweet out there that was like, 14 million people voted for the Conservatives last last time. Oh, yeah, Does yeah. that mean like she thinks that 14 million people are like arseholes or something? Like <laughs> whatever. He was clearly talking about Tory MPs. Yeah. And he, she, she clarified this as well. Like clearly, she's not talking about uh, getting on an issue by issue basis, making things happen, getting things yeah. done, doing even, her job, or even know. not being cordial to them. Just yeah. not being friends with people who are actively working to undo things she genuinely believes in. Oh, this no, is... no, no. She's meant to go for drinks with them. No, She's meant to hang yeah, out, yeah. go to, you know, go, go to Frankie and Benny's, you know, do all that with them. It's supposed... The idea that politics isn't just kayfabe is anathema to this, like, hutch of fucking private school posh boys. Like, the idea that any of this might genuinely mean something to you in your gut in a way that might actually like affect the way you look at the other people and that it's not all just business is for a start it's why everyone hates politicians that we all know it's a joke that we all know it's pantomime that they've been putting on for decades because these people all have the same class interests and these people all have the same institutional interests and the moment that someone actually gets in and articulates what i think people feel which is that no this stuff actually matters yeah people act like she's lost her mind let's run through i'm gonna run through these individual because there's five uh, 12 people 10 people five with a know, very cutesy photo shoot yes very that's that, that is a very cutesy photo shoot there's five friendships here you know like i say i'm pretty sure all of them are tory and labor um, hence the blue and red on the backgrounds um but nobody wants to be friends with carolyn lucas <laughs> I'm, I'm sure well i don't know i think a lot of people want to be friends with her but anyway um Frank Field and Nicholas Soames was the first one. And in this one, all that I got really got from it was that these guys get on together and they both are completely disagreed on the EU and, and their stances on that. Um, it, but they've had those out in the open for 30, 40 years. You know, they're fine with those. Um, but everything else I seem to see was them. There are, they were co-sponsoring each other's private members' bills. They were working together on an issue-by-issue basis. I'm like, sure, like... Why, why wouldn't you do that? Like, why wouldn't you, as an MP, try and work with all the MPs to try and get certain issues that people can agree on, regardless of party? Well, that, that no tribal loon Laura Pidcock would never work with someone on an issue-by-issue <laughs> basis, based on the merit of what they're actually trying to achieve. Yeah, so, I mean, for when I read the little breakdown of, you know, the, basically, it's an interview feature for each of these friendships. When I read that one, I was like, okay, yeah, what's, what's like, so unusual about that? Okay, whatever. Um, the next one was Anne Milton and Jess Phillips. And for me, this one was really important because it, it did kind of really represent uh, what comes back to the Laura Pidcock thing, what we'll see in some of the others, is that on a lot of issues where, uh, particularly social issues involving gender, race, uh, you know, issues like that, where sexuality, where we're mostly certain that the country has shifted to accept those views. I'm sure there'll be corners of the Tory party and in some with things like anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and things like Islamophobia in the Tory party. There are corners where it really still needs to be tackled and it's it's not to say it's not a problem whatsoever. 
But, I mean, speaking as someone who is at the very least Jewish enough for Israel, the anti-Semitism thing in Labour is present but overstated. It, it is overstated, it's, but, you know, um, what I'm saying is that it, it's still there, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the society as a whole, outside of this political bias, has moved on and accepted that anti-Semitism is bad, that, you know, gay rights should be a thing, feminism, women's rights, all these sorts of things. So when you see people from different parties um, connecting on those issues, then I don't find that surprising whatsoever. And we had Anne Milton here, Tory MP, and Jess Phillips saying they bonded over basically feminist issues. Um, you know, slurs that were given to women by uh, anonymous Tory MPs that were outed by Isabel Hardman, uh, editor of The Spectator, or one of the editors of The Spectator. And, so, you know, that doesn't really surprise me. Now, what you would see MPs between the Tories and Labour not making friendships on that I would find rather contentious are in issues of class issues that uh, people like Jeremy Corbyn has brought back to the fold and has not been afraid to discuss yeah, or throughout, his, throughout his career um, but, and put them back on the agenda now in 2015, 16 and 17 and now represented in brand new MPs like Laura Pidcock yeah like was there anyone in this article I know Jess Phillips has been quite difficult with the lift uh, left of the Labour Party. I think that there was a fairly... I think in equal measure, the, the left of the Labour Party has been difficult with her as well. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but like things like there's a certain amount of skullduggery involving her sudden sweep to the leadership of one of the uh, Labour women's groups, I think is my understanding. Like someone else, as, as far as I'm aware, got fairly unceremoniously booted out of the position to make space for her. I think I and, remember hearing about that, but I can't remember the details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, Anyway, from this particular interview with those two, Phillips says that being in opposition creates an incentive to work with like-minded women who are in better positions to influence things. So it, basically Tory MPs because they can get an influence on the government even more than Labour MPs potentially could. Sure. Um, and well, I was like, I, why, I, do you, why, why do you have to do that? Why do you have to get best friends with them? Yes, sure, they're Tory MPs um, and they can influence the government more. You could try and influence them. But does that mean you become best pals with them? Uh, like, like I say, Jess Phillips is on the right of the Labour Party, and I, I don't know the one she's friends with, but I'd imagine she's relatively moderate. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of Anne Milton either, but here's a quote from Jess Phillips on what I just described. Quote, I never think that cross-party friendships would actually force a change in your vote, but they can force the government to change what they're going to put in a bill before they do it. I mean, fair enough. And she, like, she's fair enough, and she's right there. I'm not saying that's wrong whatsoever, but I'm saying there's a certain level of distance you can allow yourself in the values that you have. And I'm sure these people are connecting on women's issues and yeah. feminist issues, and where you, but it's a, issues of class is the main divider between the two political parties in our country. Um, and it should be that way in our, in America as well, but as we've seen, not always is. Yeah, and also, obviously, like, there are a lot of ways in which, uh, you know, a couple of the pairings here, like I say, revolved around, like, the people being members of marginalised groups. But that does kind of beg the question that while it is about class, race and gender and sexuality intersect with those things yeah. very significantly. And I'm always but, kind of confused by the I would say they intersect, but, but the problem of, the this is exactly the thing, the problem of the discourse over the past you know 10 20 years has been that those items are separate those things are separate and that you know we can have friendships on you know uh, gender sex you know class, uh, race and all those things those things are accepted like i'm not saying that they still need to be fought for yeah, yeah. i'm not saying they're over by any means but society's accepted them in a much more larger scale than they have the issues of class yeah it, it's like the Clintonite thing. It's trying to address these things in a non-economic way and assuming that the only changes that need to be made are cultural. And that's the kind of thing that these people can see eye to eye on. From that same friendship, Anne Milton and Jess Phillips, that section, we had this. Uh, talking about the taboo on the left and right of how different sides uh, view each other in cross-party friendships. Uh, the Observer comments, It's a curious feature of cross-party friendships that they see more taboo on the left than the right. Tories don't boast of never having kissed a Corbynite, although right-wing social circles can be narrow as any. <laughs> they go on to say that there may have something to do with the Labour Party's origins as a movement of struggle, created to resist a conservative status quo and still wary of being co-opted into it. 
Jess Phillips says that comes out of the birth of the Labour Party. It was a fight back and that remains. When I came here, I definitely felt like I learned a different way to fight. Well, like they say, it, it's the political divide is essentially the politics of comfort versus the politics of discomfort. It, it definitely is the politics of comfort versus the politics of discomfort. It's, you know, you can kind of, when you are on the side of the status quo to a large extent, you can afford to be chummy because, like I, like I said previously, your class interests are aligned and the class interests that you take seriously are aligned. And so you have more in common than you uh, the not and if you don't take those things fundamentally seriously that is I guess a danger that you're going to find more and more and like I say as, as long as like if, if people are gonna if people from marginalized groups who find themselves in these positions of power that are largely hostile to them in a lot of ways you know if they bond with one another across party lines in the face of those things I can't exactly fault them but I also don't think that this is the best way to deal with the roots of those marginalizations, because bluntly, I don't think conservative politics can offer a decent response to them. Yeah. I think that, you know, in these kinds of cases, the, you know, the dulling of the conservative, you know, instincts to not rock the boat and to not change things too much is the thing that needs to bend. And I, I, I think as long as that's the way it's compromising, fine, but the moment it's going the other way, you kind of have to be suspicious of it because the way it bends into class politics and into identity politics and into, you know, the politics of dominance and, you know, of subaltern groups. Another group we had was Shami Chakrabarti and Saeed Awasi, both uh, peers in the House of Lords. Um, one quote from uh, Baroness Walsey really stuck out to me. I was like, what are you... Like, that is a, such a stupid comparison. Where they're both, uh, I'm pretty sure, from a law background. The Observer commented, uh, Walsey compares rival politicians to prosecution and defence lawyers in a trial. Quote, you go into court, you fight tooth and nail for your client, and you come out and have a cup of tea, we have to draw a distinction. And that's also repulsive. I know, that is such a repulsive comparison because lawyers are paid to basically fight anyone's argument, right? They're basically, they're put in place, you're hired and you have to fight for that person's, you know, defense or the prosecution, you know, whatever. Um, that's what they're there for. Yeah. Whereas a politician is supposed to be represent constituents, but you also expect values that that politician actually holds. Um, and this that, that, that quote really strikes me that kind of oh they're all the same uh, they don't actually stand for anything they're just lying to get your vote they'll say whatever they can when you can bend like that and you can say that um, we're just like lawyers we'll just argue for anyone's case and then afterwards we'll be pals afterwards you know and have a cup of tea together it's extraordinarily mercenary and also the fact that like lawyers can do that is the reason people hate lawyers even more than they hate politicians exactly it's because, so blind what she's saying there because lawyers like even more directly deal in the matter of people's lives being destroyed and like the fact that they can be that chummy draws an even worse distinction for yeah, politicians I know it's like, like you could have compared politicians to anyone you compared them to a profession that is kind of notorious for a lack of values you know that's kind of what they have to have yeah it, it's so mercenary and it's that's that's like a certain amount that i mean that quote just speaks to the lack of self-awareness there yeah no, that's like, what that's could, the main thing i see from that like how can you not be aware of what this you is said? this is someone who only socializes with lawyers and not with any of the people they represent yeah the next one we've got is heidi allen and steve reed heidi allen voted in in 2015 she was someone that's been quite well known for not being a typical Tory and she's she's greeted a lot on Twitter by why are you a Tory like you're in the wrong party and that's something that's, that was prompted and discussed in 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 this article where Steve Steve Reed actually points this out and the observer are like yeah Steve Reed's got a point that she's not your average standard Tory MP and they say they explain this quote in her two and a half years in Parliament Alan has gained a reputation for speaking her mind going against the Tory tide on such issues as tax credit cuts uh, though she eventually voted in favour <laughs> so doesn't really mean anything does of it of course she's a McCain figure yeah and the deal with the DUP uh, she spoke out on um, but they're friends because you know uh, one of their husband's brothers 
wives were, are related, whatever. Oh, so that's just the incestuous nature of our rulers. Yeah. It's actually Heidi's husband, Phil, is my brother David's best friend from school. But, yeah, you know, yeah. the association is there, I don't know, whatever. But draw from that, whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, it's worth mentioning that according to They Work For You, this maverick Heidi Allen, on the vast majority of issues, votes the same way as other Conservative MPs. Yeah, I was going to say, like, whenever you hear that Conservative MP, oh, they're a maverick, they're a rebel, to a rebel, consistently uh, speaking out against... You notice in places like The Guardian and The Observer that it's always, like, spoken out against the rest of the Tory tide, and it's like, yeah, but what do they actually vote? I mean, I like seeing the Observer article here. They actually got up and like, yeah, well, she actually voted for tax credit cuts in it. Any, uh, anyway, you know, in the end, you know, whatever. And it's the same with Anna Subri. He's so against, like, the, uh, the Brexit stuff. Uh, yeah. and, and she's such, like, a Remain voice within the Tory party. And then, you know, things like the uh, Great Repeal Act, Great Repeal Bill will come along and she'll just vote for it, like, whatever. Of course. It's the same with, again, David Davis, the walking pig fetus man that he is. <laughs> Anyway, uh, from that Heidi Allen and Steve Reid, here's some key points that I managed to draw. Um, it was quite difficult to get them to disagree on anything. It says that in, in the article. Huh. They, they generally, and they said they, we don't really talk politics, whatever. But even on a lot of issues politically related, they do agree on a lot because, uh, you know, Heidi Allen is kind of a, a left kind of Tory MP, if, if you can even say that. She's as far left as you could get in the Tories. She's very centrist. She's very moderate. Um Formative issues between them differ, though, and this is where they kind of begin to divert. Allen, uh, Heidi Allen, uh, her sort of formative impact and where she led to come into the Tories was uh, the impact of the 84 and 85 miners' strike on her own family's business. And for Steve Reid, it was the Watford Printworks being closed down. Now, it employed a lot of his own family members, and that was shut down around the same time, you know, under Thatcher. Um, so I think they're a similar sort of age. Um, so one is, like, shocked by the power that big business wields over, you know, a huge amount of his community. And the other is just mad at working people getting uppity. You could say that. Where they do differ, though, is, oh, look, they begin to differ on economic issues, on issues that affect class. Quote, it's only in the last 10 minutes of our conversation that Alan clarifies why she didn't end up in the Labour camp. The size of the state and how much it supports entrepreneurs are factors. While Reid sets out his case against the Tories. We get a few minutes of reasonably civil back and forth on Thatcher, austerity and the causes of Brexit before Alan dials it down, expressing her reluctance to, quote, turn this into a slanging match. It was like, immediately bring up the ideas that are fundamentally differing between the two parties economics class oh and look this this pair that were so chummy and i'm sort of i'm sure they are still friends and still on good good terms it begins to break apart a little bit they begin to argue a bit and begin to you know have a back and forth just yeah. kind of what you'd expect it's, between it, it's this very outdated consensus politics that they seem to bunch up around where you know now that class stuff is becoming more relevant and is being brought into the forefront because it is because it's the foundational issue behind so many things in our society that are you know becoming breaking points be it the brexit vote or more positively the massive swing of support for the proper labor left that seemingly came out of nowhere until you look at the actual class circumstances yeah. that have been going on in this country for the last 40 years Last one is Johnny Mercer, ex-army guy, and he became an MP to help veterans and help people that are in the armed forces at the moment. Uh, Johnny Mercer and Ruth Smeave, who I'm pretty sure is maybe a more centrist MP, um, and they uh, were brought together uh, again by another issue that isn't anything to do with class or economics necessarily distinctly, but something which is anti-Semitism, something that most people out there agree is bad. There's not really a divide on that. It's a, it's a, it's a very minority view anti-semitic views and they, they basically bonded over that it was it was anti-semitic abuse that ruth smead was receiving and johnny mercer basically consoled her on it which yeah. you'd expect it's kind of like if someone in the tory party who was of an asian minor, minority background was receiving abuse for that you, you'd expect labor mps to be like in the corridor be like that you're right you know that's that's awful you shouldn't have to deal with this yeah to call it out right yeah but you, I, I don't see why that's like a shocking thing to see yeah. a Tory or Labour MP to come together over that. And Smeed, again, it's similar to what Jess Phillips said earlier, um, talks about uh, being friendly with Tory MPs to influence government policy or whatever. 
She says, quote, I think after every general election, every MP comes back very tribal. But you realise quite quickly that if you want to get anything achieved, you have to start talking, especially if you're on the opposition benches. It's the most frustrating thing as an MP to hold the hands of my constituents as they're crying, and I can't fix it. I have to build support to do that. Even her colleague Laura Pidcock, she suggests, might change her mind about befriending Tories after more time in Parliament and a spell oh on a select committee. God. And there you go. She basically says, no, we have to talk to Tory MPs. Laura Pidcock, what you're saying is rubbish. It's, Laura Pidcock was basically saying, yeah, we'll, I'll work with them on an issue-by-issue basis, but I'm not going to go for champagne drinks no 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 i think you missed remembering what happened was on her first day of being an mp she walked into parliament and declared that she wanted a hundred tory scalps and that was just (laughs) the first day she she's she's famously calling for the genocide of not just tory mps but everyone who's ever voted conservative this is the idea that the only way you can get anything's done and you see it with the, yeah. the fucking democrats in america the way obama gave all those consolations to the republicans and then they just voted it yeah. all down anyway time and time it's again like, completely they told capitulate. Them to fuck themselves because they were just testing how weak he was yeah capitulate this you know capitulate from the center you know just give Tory MPs everything yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and be, be, be so friendly with them on economic, economic issues and describe talking with them as being really friendly with them and being best friends with them I don't see those two things as exactly the same thing Barton. one last quote on this before we move on and um, it's just an amusing one from Johnny Mercer uh, on political history Mercer however remembers long bus journeys during their travels where, where she Ruth Smith patiently filled in the gaps in his political education Quote, I really enjoy history lessons from Ruth about the Labour Party and the Tory Party of the past because I don't know too much about it. Fair enough. He has been, he says, taken aback by, quote, how visceral dislike of the Conservative Party is from the Labour side in general. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know. I wonder why, mate. I, mean, I yeah, wonder why. Maybe if you've learned your history of British politics from, like, one of your ideological opponents... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just this or, kind of you know how much of an ideological opponent must they be? It's this thing from the the right the right wing and conservatives that you get quite a lot, which is why do they hate us so much? You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I just find hilarious because of course there are no stakes to them or anything that they represent. No. Right. Let's move on. Uh, what have you got on Trump? Let's move over to America. What I've got is another stunning, humiliating set of art- uh, like articles about what completely dysfunctional like what a completely dysfunctional president Trump is and what a bizarre White House he's lending so I've just got a couple of choice quotes I felt like I'd share Um, now this is of course formerly it was called a pressure cooker uh, but the Trump White House now is according to a very deeply reported story in the Washington Post done by Ashley Parker and Greg Jaffe I think that's how it's pronounced is now a quote adult daycare center There's some amazing stuff here. Apparently, when advisors hope to prevent Trump from making what they think is an unwise decision, they'll frequently try to just delay his final verdict, hoping he may reconsider after having time to calm down. Oh my god. They so this this guy is like this guy is a child. He makes a decision immediately without knowing basically anything. And then they have to say, like, okay, we'll put a pin in that. Um Some Trump aides spend a significant part of their time devising ways to rein him in and control the impetuous president, angling to avoid outbursts that might work against him. Quote, If you visit the White House today, you see aides running around with red faces, shuffling paper and trying to keep up with this president, said one Republican in frequent contact with the administration. That's what the scene is. Now, it's worth mentioning, none of the aides for this story, of which, like I say, they spoke to 18 of them, None of them would go on the record with their actual names because, of course, there'd be immediate not, brutal yeah. reprisals. <laughs> and because I, I don't think they've been able to do basically anything to stop this administration leaking like a sinking ship. Basically, entirely because Trump is on the phone with White House reporters every single day, just complaining openly. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's pretty astonishing here. One defining feature of managing Trump is frequent praise, which can leave his team in what seems to be a state of perpetual compliments. The White House pushes out news releases overflowing with top officials heaping flattery on Trump. 
In one particularly memorable cabinet meeting this year, each member went around the room lavishing the president <laughs> with accolades. I remember, I remember. That was oh, so weird. He's such so a, funny. He's such a special boy. And remember just last week when uh, when Tillerson had to do an active, like an active press, re- uh, like a, a you know a press conference. After everyone has known, like, his role is massively diminished. The State Department means nothing because he'll just offload everything about foreign policy to Jared. And all these other, like, stupid things. It turns out that he called him a moron because of course he did. Of course he did. Everyone knows Trump is a moron. He's just this, like, haircut with a dying brain who failed upwards because he inherited millions upon millions of dollars. And just, that's the way wealth works. You just fail upwards and you know he had to hold a press conference saying what a smart boy donald trump was it was just it was really entertaining to see him just be humiliated for this audience of one who's just like standing back going say the word say i'm a smart boy i have such a good iq maybe the best iq you know it's hilarious to watch this stuff but um here we go. One regular practitioner is Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Worth also mentioning, uh, one of the key producers for the movie Suicide Squad. Uh, as if oh, yeah. He, as if he hadn't inflicted enough pain on the American people. Uh, who praised Trump's controversial statements made after white supremacists had a violent rally in Charlottesville. And also that he agreed with Trump that professional football players should stand during the national anthem. Neither issue has anything to do with the Treasury Department. It's worth mentioning that. And the the standing for the national anthem thing is the dumbest bugbear. Like, obviously people should, like, use their platform to protest, like, horrifying police violence. And it's, like, the fucking resistance people have turned this into an anti-Trump thing. But he started doing it under Obama. Like, I don't know what these people want. It's a it's a thing about, like, police violence against black people. It's They can make it about Trump or they cannot, but it's just so dumb. Now, referring to other executive ass kisses, H.R. McMaster, the president's national security advisor, has frequently resorted to diversionary tactics to manage Trump. This will be his military background coming into play. In the Oval Office, he will often volunteer to have his staff study Trump's more unorthodox ideas. When Trump wanted to make South Korea pay for the entire cost of a shared missile defense system, McMaster and top aides huddled to come up with arguments that the money spent defending North Korea and Japan also benefited the US economy in the form of manufacturing jobs, according to two people familiar with the debate. He plays rope-a-dope with him, a senior administration official said. He thinks Trump is going to forget, but he doesn't. HR's strategists say, let us study that boss. He tries to deflect. <laughs> so rather than just going like, yes, that's very smart. Go do something else. Go do something else. He'll go like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's look into that and see if we can make it rigorous. And then he comes back and says, no. And he doesn't say like, that's an idea a child would have. He just says like, we've looked into it and it's actually great for American jobs if we do the opposite of everything you say. Which, of course, is just another reason to praise his leadership, because he can then... He's such a good delegator. Um, Of course, the president chased at the idea that... at the impression that his aides coddle him or treat him like a wayward teenager. I think teenagers probably screwing a bit old for his behavior. (laughs) He Uh, does come across more of as a toddler. Yeah. During the campaign, after reading a story in the New York Times that said Trump's advisors went on television to talk directly to him, the candidate exploded at his then-campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, chastising his top aide for treating him like a baby, according to Devil's Bargain, a book that chronicles Trump's part of the presidency. A baby seems more like it, doesn't it? Yeah. That's, that's a surprising amount of self-reflection for Trump. It's, it's funny with Trump, because it's just, again, he goes around calling everyone a baby. Oh, you're such a baby. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, you were the biggest man-child anyone has ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Because he's perpetually sundowning, he's unable to remember that he's just called someone that, I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's... Uh, or is it? Some, aid, some aides and advisors have found a way to manage Trump without seeming to condescend. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis has disagreed with his boss on a range of issues, including the effectiveness of torture, the importance of NATO, and the wisdom of withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal. Trump seems to hold many Republican lawmakers and some members of his own cabinet 
In similarly low regard, several people who have met with Trump in recent weeks said that he has a habit of mocking other officials in Washington, especially fellow Republicans. In meeting at the White House last month with House and Senate leaders from both parties, for instance, Trump upset Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Paul Ryan by cutting a deal with Democrats. In subsequent days behind closed doors, the president mocks the reactions of McConnell and Ryan from the meeting with an exaggerated crossing of his arms and theatrical frowns. Again, not what a child would do at all, but it speaks to how dysfunctional this guy does, that he doesn't he doesn't even understand the basic logic of like political coalitions. Just he doesn't understand like, oh, these people are mostly like on my side. I should yeah. probably not piss them off. But in a similar display of mocking that's slightly more sinister. I want to close off with a quote that's been fairly well circulated uh, by the great Jane Mayer writing for the New Yorker. If people don't know Jane Mayer, uh, she most recently wrote Dark Money, which is a really chilling expose into the ways in which the Koch brothers have accumulated power yeah. over the last several decades and how they exercise it within American Republic. Uh, American uh, public policy, as well as the dark side, which was a similarly chilling expose of the sprawling spread of the war on terror to cover just about every aspect of American governance. She's maybe the best investigator of the spread of American oligarchy in the contemporary Amer like in the, in the contemporary political system. And she also writes a lot for the New Yorker. And a quote that she came up with uh, is on the relationship between Trump and Pence. Uh, according to a longtime associate, Trump also likes to let Pence know who's boss. A staff member from Trump's campaign recalls him mocking Pence's religiosity. He said that when people met with Trump after stopping by Pence's office, Trump would ask them, did Mike make you pray? Two sources also recalled <laughs> Trump needling Pence about his views on abortion and homosexuality. During a meeting with a legal scholar, Trump belittled Pence's determination to overturn Roe v. Wade. The legal scholar had said that if the Supreme Court did so, many states would likely legalize abortion on their own. You see, Trump said Pence, you've wasted all your time and energy on it, and it's not going to end abortion anyway. When the conversation turned to gay rights, Trump motioned towards Pence and joked, don't ask that guy, he wants to hang them all. <laughs> So Jesus Christ. there's been a lot of said like Mike Pence as being the Handmaid's Tale pres uh, like yeah. president. Like Jane Mayer's top thing is all about how Pence would probably be a worse uh, president for the people of America than Donald Trump would, just because Donald Trump is an idiot baby yeah. who will go whichever way the wind is blowing, and also do also just on most matters fails to get anything done because yeah, he's because so of incompetence and dysfunction. Whereas Mike Pence is an extremely hardline, extremely religious tool of the far right in America. He is a genuinely chilling figure, and I'd really recommend reading Jane Mayer's article. Uh, that's in The New Yorker. It's widely available online. It's it's terrifying stuff, and you know, it makes me really, really worried for you know the potential. Because, I mean... Trump probably isn't going to finish out his full term. I, I, I mean, I did have an interesting discussion with some people the other day uh, on who do you think is going to go first, May or Trump. <laughs> and for me, I was like, it's obvious, it's May. It's got to be May. Um, she just even. It's gonna be May. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. You did that to me. I'm blaming <laughs> you. Even, even the political situations, how good leaders they are, whatever. Even that aside, just the structures in place for election and pulling a leader out. You know, it's gonna be way harder to get rid of Trump than it is to remove May. Yeah. And there's so much more pressure on May than there is on, there is on Trump. Not to mention, uh, like, the the things that the a British conservative movement wants to get done haven't been further from the realms of political possibility since the like massive like influx of power to Labour in 1997 and even then like their actual priorities went that far away yeah. like in the wake of the you know oncoming success of Corbyn they aren't able to achieve anything whereas the American far right have never been more powerful not once like it, it's it's shocking how like how absolutely inaugurated into power they basically are yeah i mean also there's the basic fact that you know the left hasn't taken you know the main party of power you know the democrats they haven't really you know won the power of what the democrats have the leadership and all those sorts of functions 
over there, whereas the left have researched and, you know, really taken over the Labour Party. Yeah, the same people who failed to beat this screaming orange game show host are fighting tooth and nail to retain their power yeah. in the DNC. Tom Perez just, uh, like, put in place some fucking ghoul who campaigned against a rise in the minimum wage in Georgia to be, like, a core financial advisor to the DNC. Ugh. These exact ghouls are just trying to inaugurate their power, even as their ideology fails harder and harder with each passing election. And it's only going to be when they, you know, get Trump re-elected that these people are ever- You know what? I don't even think even then. Like, if they didn't- Yeah, that's probably over If they didn't realise it in 2016, why are they going to really realise in 2020? It, it's it's basic iron law of institutions, like, I mean, to be honest. It's These people care more about their status within these institutions than they do about the actual mission statements of the institutions themselves. We're going to quickly finish with one last thing now, which is former spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn, Matt Zab cousin, appeared on Peston on Sunday, the ITV morning show uh, with Robert Peston. As Croissant Corner, I guess they call it on that show. <laughs> he was alongside Nicky Morgan. And he outlined what he thinks is going to happen with Theresa May with Brexit and with a general elections over the next few years. A lot of people think there's going to be an early one. Could They could lay it out all the way to 2022. But here's what he outlined. He said, quote, Because of the way negotiations have been handled, I don't think we're going to get a deal. So I think we're going to end up staying in the European Union. Therefore, I think Theresa May will resign in 2019. Then there will be a leadership contest between someone who wants no deal and someone who wants to stay in the European Union. And we could have an election that year. So what he's basically underlining there is the ineptitude and incompetence at getting any deal done whatsoever by the Conservative Party right now in negotiation with the European Union. And he, he sees that there will be no deal made because it's failing. And then they're, they're going to fall back on this idea of no deal is better than a bad deal, which is bullshit. Because yeah, it's, it's this idea that there's a, a, a good deal and a bad deal and then we can just like have what we've got now is like the no deal thing. Whereas the real scale is no deal, bad deal, and then like drive off cliff. Yeah, these people still think Britannia rules the waves yeah. and never ever will be slaves. It's the most insane. It, these people compare it to leaving a country club. And no, it's it's... It's maybe like leaving a country club if you do most of your business through that country club. Yeah. And Whilst walking through a bandsaw that chops half your leg off. That that too. We'll add that. Uh, it, it's it's the the lack of understanding for the basic, like the basic reliance that our institutions have on the EU and have built up, or, or just on the broader idea of globalization. The idea that things can be non-disruptive yeah. in the move away from things and that we can just, oh, we'll be fine. So what, the, he, what he was kind of underlining there was that, you know, that's what's going to happen in a no-deal scenario and it's going to be so unacceptable. And they're basically saying, they're all saying, oh yeah, he said this later on the show, they're all saying that oh, we can fall back to a no-deal, but no, no one is ever going to enact a no-deal. It would be like economic catastrophe yeah like we're they're never even the tories are not going to go oh yeah no we are actually going to go through the no deal thing that we threatened we would they're obviously they're going to get to that stage they're using it as a bargaining chip that's all they're doing they're saying oh well we'll walk away we'll walk away if you don't do this that would be fascinating but the eu have seen straight through it they know they can't walk away yeah. on that front they have to get some for, sort of form of trade deal um and then they're not going to be able to so he's basically saying that's going to happen and because um Theresa May won't let that happen they'll end up staying in the EU so we'll remain full they'll revoke Article 50 because that can be done legally yep. um, and then we'll stay in the EU and obviously that will be so unacceptable to large swathes of the country and even more so her party will literally take her out within 10 seconds of hearing that they won't yep. even they won't even wait till you know she's turned around to see the gun behind her and then between the hardline eurosceptic and the remainer the 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 brexit person will inevitably win and then they'll have to repeat this whole cycle yeah it's it's just insane it's completely unworkable what, what's them. more likely is that the country will see this kind of ridiculous ineptitude and incompetence and more likely vote in a, a Labour government. Or at least at yeah, that point, there'll, there'll, they be a, there'll be a... from Labour? Well, at least what I'm saying there is there's likely to be an election that year, which is what Matt cousin is, is expecting it. Not, not necessarily saying what Labour would be doing, but 
that's what he sees is happening. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and what you think, how realistic that... I mean, I thought, you know, people haven't been talking about this enough, that it's going to be so disastrous that we end up staying in anyway. You know, I mean, no second referendum that... The, my assumption has always been that they literally just wait out a certain number of baby boomer deaths and then we rejoin in like a decade. <laughs> uh, like the the only worry would be that time around we probably don't get to keep uh, the pound, in which case, you know, there's only so much that we can do to advance uh, like more you know radical redistributive yeah. politics where the EU and you know can just enforce a more austerity led thing as they did in Greece. Um, you know, it, it's. I think that that's a fairly realistic time uh, timeline in, yeah. in retro. I didn't expect the talks to go as disastrously as they have. I I kind of did. Like this is just going exactly how I thought they would. Because like it's the Tories, man. Like what do you think they're going to do? They're just going to sing Britannia rules the waves and then, or at least large I mean, swathes of their party are going to be wanting. I knew that. that their voters would do that. I didn't think that the actual Conservatives were so dumb. I thought I basically assumed that the divide in the Conservatives was people whose business interests are already entrenched or have ties to the EU and the people whose business interests have ties in America and other parts of the world who could potentially get in on that action. I didn't assume that any of these people actually believe their own nonsense such that they would go for a no deal, genuinely. Anyway, we're going to end it there. Uh, Maybe next week we'll hear more about this sort of thing maybe more about cross-party friendships you know maybe uh, those, we want to believe that you can cross the aisle all, all those people you know yeah, yeah cross-party at friendships at the end of the day go for a drink <laughs> all, all, <sighs> those, all those people you know that were a year ago saying we need strong opposition um, here yeah. they are now we need a strong opposition who aren't afraid to go to karaoke with those <laughs> <laughs> yeah so this has been Off The Fence uh, catch us on Twitter at Off The Fence talk on there give us a tweet give us a follow and remember, uh, if any of our tweets are unreasonably obscene, it was definitely James that made them. It, it, oh, I can't accept that. Anyway, <laughs> um, I've been James Fox, Alex Masco as well. This has been Off The Fence. Thanks for listening. Have a good week, everyone. Bye.